Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. Thanks to Sally for another great show of Out of the Pan. Make sure you check that, check that out, 12 to 1 every Sunday. Um, lots of interesting discussions around uh, issues around um, yeah, queer or, or rainbow issues and, and communities. So definitely have a listen to that. You can find it at 3 cr.org.au and we first I'll introduce our newest member of the Freedom Freedom of Species team. Welcome to the team, Madison. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm so excited to be here. And so Madison Griffiths is going to be a, yeah a member of the team. So I look forward to having yeah lots of new uh, shows and ideas from Madison. And our guest today is Paul Mikhail Katapang Podoski. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. And maybe for listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, could you talk a little bit about yeah. Um, I guess the article we'll be focusing on today and also, yeah, your area of work and that kind of thing? So, yeah, broadly, I'm interested in the way that language and concepts uh, play a role in reinforcing social hierarchy or unjust social relations. Um, so this um, this applies to a number of different areas. Um, so feminism, critical race theory, um, but also uh, mostly the sort of work I've done in my past, which is in animal ethics. Um and so the article that I'm going to talk about today is uh, is on this topic. So it's on the way in which language is used to exploit our moral sensibilities and reinforce Karna's ideology or the ideology of meat eating. Great. And maybe just a bit of background about yourself as well. So, yeah, I guess how you got involved in this issue, this idea of animal ethics and advocating for animals, and also how did that go from, a, I guess, a general concern to a concern in your work, or were you, were you already in that area and then that sort of was applied to animals? So I want to say I probably had a pretty typical experience, um, as most people, I guess, in the North Side have, where you know, when they get into animal ethics or veganism, where you read something like Peter Singer's Animal Liberation uh, in particular. But there's one sort of peculiarity about my story, which is my, my dad is a philosopher, and he was always on the hunt for philosophical discussion or argument. He wants to argue with you. And so I guess the topic uh, one night was just animal ethics, and he convinced me that uh, the eating of meat or um, the consumption of non-human animals in any variety is just morally impermissible, even though he doesn't endorse it himself. He's, mm. This is just something that he, he thought he should argue for. Mm. And so from there, he said, Re- go read Peter Singer and see what you think. I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. I thought this is pretty cool. Um, and then from there, it sort of uh, prompts you to adopt a particular diet. And then it got me interested in the ways in which um, ideology reinforces itself. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah, I think in in the uh, area of philosophy, I mean, it's not my area of research, but I, I find often that 
yeah, often even just when I speak in my sociology classes about this issue, I find a lot of people philosophically actually agree with their arguments around veganism and animal rights, but they don't necessarily put it into practice. So I've, I've heard, you know, one of my students once said, um, yeah, I'll have to add this to my long list of things, reasons why I'm a hypocrite, basically. Yeah. They're like, you're totally right, but I'm not going to change. So, yeah, in, when you're talking about this in philosophy, uh, yeah, amongst your colleagues and that kind of thing, do a lot of people, do they sort of push back against the arguments philosophically or do they kind of say, you're right, but I don't want to make that change? I think that this latter thing is the response that I typically get, which is I find a very interesting response because it's one of those things where people recognise that they're not doing something right or they're doing something that's morally impermissible, but nonetheless they think, well, this just isn't for me. I can't do it. I can't stop eating meat, which I think, again, um, it brings up a kind of interesting question about what ideology is actually about. Because in these sorts of instances, it's not as if they have bad beliefs. They, in fact, have the right beliefs, which is that eating animals or consuming non-human animals is wrong. But nonetheless, that's not enough to motivate them to change their behavior, which I think is a super interesting question, I think is an empirical question, which goes beyond the realms of philosophy. And yeah, I, maybe just to, we'll, we'll discuss this more after a track in a minute, but maybe just to start things off, could you talk a little bit about this distinction, which was key in your article of killing humanely versus humane killing? Just introduce listeners to that distinction. Which, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so let me introduce a thought experiment. Um, so suppose you're in a supermarket and you're walking down the aisles and you come to the section where there's dead animals packaged in plastic and you see a sticker uh, slapped on it that says humane. So the idea that um, what's meant to prompt this kind of, uh, what sorts of intuitions is meant to be prompted is certain questions will come into your, into mind about what exactly humane means in these contexts. Typically what people will think is something like, well, did the animal suffer? Um, in what way was it killed? You'll, they'll ask questions about the killing method. Um, and this is what I've labelled this idea of killing humanely, where the context of moral assessment is about the method of killing and not whether or not the killing ought to happen. That second bit is what I mean by a humane killing. And these are the sorts of things that come into consideration with things uh, when, we, when we think about whether it's permissible to put down a companion animal or to have them euthanize, is that we don't just think about a painless death. We think about whether or not the best days are be, you know, behind them, uh, whether or not they're in suffering in their life, all sorts of things like that. So that's the basic distinction is whether or not we're only concerned with the moral permissibility with respect to the killing method or whether or not we're assessing whether or not a killing ought to happen in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Right. I think that's a really good introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. So we'll take a track and then we'll get into all of that in more detail after the break. So what I'm going to play is actually rather than a song here is actually just a little clip from another podcast. This is Animal Voices podcast uh, from out of Canada, um, which you can find at animalvoices.org. And this is um, Jonathan Balcombe. I don't know if either of you familiar with Jonathan Balcombe, but he basically looks into animal behavior, like the science of animal behavior. Um, and he wrote the book Pleasurable Kingdom animals and the nature of feeling good and it's all about the way in which animals they don't just suffer although suffering is important in terms of our ethics towards them um, but also this idea that animals enjoy their lives and that implications um, for which Paul touched on that idea of you know definitely their suffering is important but also continuing to live and enjoying their lives is also important so yeah we'll play just a little bit of this bit this is um, Jonathan Balcombe. Animals too live in a pleasurable world. It's not all about pleasure, but pleasure is a very, very important part of their daily lives. It's a great point, and it's a point that you made in your previous book, and I think that you really hammer it home with this one. Even when you talk about not-so-pleasurable experience, it's clear that 
the actual lives themselves, even when they're not pleasurable, are sort of inherently pleasurable, that the experience of life itself is pleasurable. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a take-home message from that animals experience pleasure is that life is worth living. There's this phrase we know, quality of life. Well, animals, meaning, of course, non-human animals, we're animals as well, but animals also have a quality of life. And the moral implications are really uh, important from that, because if life's worth living, death is harmful. So theoretically, even a pristinely humane death that the victim never even knew what was coming, uh, we regard that as still a terrible thing. It would be a terrible crime to murder someone in such a way even if they never knew it was coming and they never suffered, we'd still consider it a terrible crime, punishable by very severe penalty. Why? Well, because you've ended someone's life. Well, why is that harmful? They didn't suffer. The reason it's harmful, of course, I think ultimately, is that you deprive the victim of a future life. And why is that harmful? Well, because life is worth living. Life has pleasure. Life has rewards. And even if it's a difficult life, Everybody wants to live it. Everybody wants a chance to have a go at life. And look at how animals struggle to avoid death. They may not be thinking about it in the cognitive way always that we're thinking about it, but they desperately want to live. It's natural to them to want to extend their life. And um, I don't think it's beyond the pale to suggest that there is some recognition in many animals that they know why they want to live. They want to have another go at that fruit tomorrow, or they want to have another opportunity to forage in that pasture, or whatever they do. It's worth something to them, and they don't want to lose it. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Welcome back to Freedom of Species, and we're joined today by Paul Mikhail Tatapang Podosky, who is speaking to us about an article that was published in the Journal of Animal Ethics that tackled what the difference was between killing humanely, as we know it, versus humane killing. And Paul, I know you speak about, um, explicitly in that thought experiment, you spoke about packaged animal flesh, but I want to ensure that we're all on the same page. You were also talking about eggs and dairy and whatnot. As well. Yeah, definitely. So I think that in the in the way that the concept humane has been exploited by the mediating industry to sort of confuse our moral sensibilities, I think a number of different terms and concepts do that as well. One of them is going to be free range. Mm. Um, that's going to exploit our moral sensibilities because there just aren't regulations that are spe- you know, specified that's actually going to tell us um, exactly, you know, how much free movement they actually have and whether or not being able to specify a range of free movement is actually, you know, something we should factor into our moral considerations. And ethically sourced is also another one. Mm. Um, these are the sorts of concepts that I have in mind. But humane is the one that seems to be one that's sort of regularly deployed. Because humane assumes compassion and benevolence. Yes. And do you think that this um, is something, you know, this captures the tension between vegetarianism and veganism? And it's actually something that I find quite a few uh, vegan associates of mine or vegan friends of mine find particularly jarring about consumers of of dairy and eggs because it is that sort of falling within the parameters of, of still being able to consider yourself someone that supports humane processes yeah. when 
you're arguing that that's not necessarily the case. I think for even concepts like uh, benevolent and compassion are just ambiguous across multiple readings where um, benevolence might be interpreted as um, not causing suffering to something. Right. Or it can be benevolence can be ensuring that someone's life is worth living or mm. something like that. And, and so the issue is that because, they happen, because a lot of these concepts are just not precise, it means that they're up for interpretation by basically anyone in society to be able to exploit and use to exercise power over a marginalised group. In this, in this case, animals mm-hmm. right? or non-human animals. And do you think? I mean, there clearly is a market for humane consumption. There is no denying that. When you look at the the statistics, so the Guardian released statistics in two thousand and seventeen, arguing that seventy five percent of people who do purchase animal products do ensure that they purchase them under the guise that they are ethically sourced, as you said, are free range, as you said. Um, so it does seem like there is a deliberate marketing ploy here. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case. I think what's happened is that animal advocates and animal, uh, animal ad- activists have done a really good job of making explicit what was previously implicit, which was the suffering, the grave suffering of non-human animals. And that's obviously caused some people to take reflection upon their lives and say, am I doing, uh, am I acting well? Am I living right? Um, and as a response, the meat-eating industry said, well, okay, we need to respond with mm. a moral solution here. And so you can this eat is, right and still exploit animals. Exactly. Yeah. So this is this this is the I think this is one of the ways in which they can reinforce this kind of ideology by making us feel good by performing immoral actions. Which... Absolutely, and I think there's also something else quite insidious that takes place. Um, and I'm not sure if you agree with me on this one, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. What it inevitably does is when you stick a humane sticker on something that is so obviously death uh, or so obviously packaged violence, I think what it does is it ties the narrative of death in the animal's life cycle as just an inevitable thing that will that will happen to these farm animals. Would you agree that that's the case? Yes, I think that that's definitely the case. Um, as I mentioned before, the context of our moral assessment when it comes to things, uh, it comes to killing humanely, is that it takes for granted that the animal, that it is permissible to kill the animal in the first place, in order for us to direct our attention to whether to the method or the means by which the animal is killed. So it's definitely taken for granted that it's permissible to kill animals, and so that's just part of their life. Is that that's what they're used for? Now the question is, how should we do it? How should we kill them? How mm. should we consume them? Mm. And what, one example from your article, which I found really interesting, and I think really spells out the, these ideas in a, in a really powerful way, was uh, two examples of euthanizing companion animals. And I think one of them might be debated whether that term euthanasia would be appropriate. But yeah, two, two, uh, two examples of killing animals, which I think um, highlight this dis- distinction really well. Yeah, yeah. So the, in the first case, um, um, in the first case, we can... Think of a sort of very somewhat permissible case in which it's all right to euthanize a, a companion animal or a beloved family, a, uh, a pet. Um, and that's one in which uh, the companion animal is in great suffering, that their best days um, are outnumbered by their bad, their bad days, um, that they're just not living a life worth living or something like that. And so we take into consideration a number of different things, the sorts of preferences, the sorts of suffering. Um, all that sort of stuff. And then we make a decision about whether or not we euthanize them. And in, in that case, it looks permissible. But in another case where we just say, well, look, we want to go on a holiday. Say a family wants to go on a holiday and they couldn't find anyone to look after their dog. And they say, well, look, we can't find anyone to look after this dog. Um, 
we can't just leave it at home. So maybe we'll go and get it, you know, put down um, just so we can go on this holiday. But they'll make sure that it's a pain-free uh, death. It's like that in that's enough to motivate or to sort of trigger a kind of response in us which says hey that's not on that's mm. that's um, something that we shouldn't accept but nonetheless this is the sort of thing that the meat eating industry sort of tells us about farm animals they say farm animals they're not suffering they're living their best life um, but then we should we should stop and say well if they're living their best life then we shouldn't put them down right mm -hmm. because that's 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 part of the problem yeah. mm. Yeah, and I had a you know personal experience of that fairly recently with with my dog Charlie, who was he was uh, sixteen years old and he, and he had cancer, and and it was such a, a hard mindset of kind of doing everything we we could to keep him alive, and you know so much you know treatment and that kind of thing, and then it kind of reached a point where the kind of the treatment wasn't working, the quality of life was deteriorating. They were kind of saying, well, you have to you know you have to put him down, and that was again a really hard decision of changing your mindset. I think anyone you care about because of that sort of quality of life enjoying life which was touched on in the clip earlier from jonathan balcombe it's like anyone we care about whether they're human or non-human we want to extend their life as much as possible again except in the worst possible circumstances like that um so it was really it was really difficult to change that mindset but i also find it ridiculous that you know in these animal industries these that same arguments so as you say kill healthy animals it yeah. might be you know one tenth of their lifespan or yeah some very short amount and they're totally healthy animals like they're totally different examples and yeah that they but that, that's often the way they speak about that killing. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah. I think, as we all know, there's a great deal of pain that's actually involved in just keeping farmed animals housed, mm. which is a kind of interesting thing to think about because they're so worried about a pain-free death, but they're not worried about a pain-free life. So it's kind of interesting that that's another way in which they can sort of... Uh, they can mask injustices like that, like living a pain... Um, a pained life, but only focusing on a pain-free death seems to be something that's just like confusing our moral sensibilities as well. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It just further proves that the parameters within which we understand an animal's life and worth and then death is so constrained to to the lens of consumption still. Like it's so constrained to that lens or that understanding. Um, and I find it even quite interesting if we, you know, I think eggs are a, a complex um discussion to have but I, even the way like chickens are advertised or the free-range eggs and chickens are advertised and there's this almost caricature of the the chicken running around the hills so there clearly is something there in in that in terms of like wanting to ensure that there is a good life of some some you know parameters there is a good life happening how do you think what do you think about that in terms of free-range eggs and the way they're advertised the way that they're advertised? Yeah. Or what do I think about the consumption of free-range eggs? I mean, that's a whole episode, I think. <laughs> so maybe perhaps the way that they... Perhaps the way that the chickens' lives right. are sold to consumers to essentially make them feel better. Yeah, I think that that's just another example of this way of exploiting our moral sensibilities, where we want to feel good about what we do. No one sort of wants to take a step back and, and, and sort of accept that they're acting inappropriately or morally and permissibly and all sorts of things like that. So we have to, you know, we have to find these ways to sort of ease our cognitive dissonance about ourselves in the positive sense. Um, and a way in which we can do that is just by engaging in behaviour that gives off the appearance of being morally permissible or mm. moral, um, without really questioning it to too much extent that we might uncover 
um, some facts about our moral imp- morally impermissible actions. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and getting back to the, the philosophers, for example, I think it applies to everyone. Again, they might hear your arguments and go, that's actually a valid case and mm. I probably shouldn't be eating animals. Um, and so, again, they can make the switch to veganism, which, you know, depending on your circumstance can be easier or harder depending yeah. on your access and all those kind of things. You know, it's different for each individual, but either way, it's a bigger change than, say, switching to free range where you can still use all the same recipes yeah. and not having to change your habits. I think a lot of it sort of comes back to that. Maybe they'll hear your arguments and go, well, maybe if I just buy a free range, I might at least somewhat be addressing some of your concerns, I guess. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I think that's yeah. certainly the case. Mm. And, yeah, you also touched on, yeah, the meat-eating industry using moral language uh, to trick the moral community. So could you talk a bit about, yeah, this word humane, which I guess we often probably associate more with maybe with animal advocates or people who are concerned about animals and, yeah, industry actually using using terms like humane. Right. So I I think the... The first thing to notice about the concept humane is that it's what I guess some philosophers call a thick concept, which is not only is it it sort of have descriptive elements, um, it doesn't just describe what the world is like, it it has some kind of evaluative and normative elements too. So it makes it kind of, uh, it has an association with positive moral properties, basically. And so the idea is that, um, so how does the mediating industry use this kind of concept to trick us? Well, it applies it to certain things that, um, that are clearly immoral, but because the concept is applied to it, makes us believe that it's moral, right? Um, and so this is humane is one of them. So when they put the slap sticker humane on the, on a, you know a dead animal, it makes us think that oh this is mo- it's morally permissible for me to eat this. This is fine, and and this is because they're just directing our attention to the killing method while ignoring questions about the um, killing, uh, whether or not the killing ought to happen. And so the idea is that when you use these thick moral concepts to um, things that are actually immoral or bad out there in the world, we can really be confused about whether or not we're acting good or bad. Mm. And that's sort of what I think the meat-eating industry does really well. Yeah, and I, I think also um, getting in terms of the meat-eating industry, I also want to mention that you know there's obviously lots of debates and different animal advocates doing different things, but... I also think a lot of this relates to our, you know, the property status of animals. So animals being property under the law and also this idea of using animals and not challenging that use of animals, um, which, as you say, definitely comes from industry. This idea like it's humane because things are done a certain way or at least as Madison touched on, there's at least a perception that things are done in a certain way at the very least. Um, But we don't really challenge this this use of animals as property. And going back to even the companion animal example you gave of euthanizing an animal because we're going away and we can't be bothered finding someone to look after our dog or whatever, um, that is generally morally permissible, not morally, legally permissible because of animals as property, just like you can yeah. put your, you know, if you're done with your car, you can also put yeah. that in as well. And also the way in which this is sometimes done by animal advocates as well. So just from the RSPCA, or sort of a fairly well-known animal group, um, on their website, they, they say, what does the term humane killing or humane slaughter mean? And so they mention that dictionary meanings of humane include kind, benevolent behaviour and compassion for the suffering or distress when applied to people and inflicts less pain than others when applied to an instrument. And I thought this sort of, this yeah. instrumental view of animals seems so, at least to me, so fundamental with a lot of our problems, a lot of these issues. Certainly, I think that that's true. And I think that this is um, the kind of instrumental um, 
interpretation of animals really depends on the concepts and language that we're using to interpret their uh, their lives. Um, so, and and this is interesting because we use the what's interesting about this conversation as well is that we use the terms things like companion animals instead of pets, right? Mm. Which is one way in which we can actually go about um, revealing the moral properties that animals have by showing that. Because pet has all sorts of associations with, you know, you know, dominance and subordination. Pets are something that we own. Pets are something that we um, that we can, you know, control. All sorts of things like that. Um, and the shift to companion animals is interesting because it, what it does is kind of unmask uh, this um, the the dominance and subordination relation and shows that there is this intrinsically morally valuable thing that we should be taking into full moral consideration. Mm. Um, but what I think we haven't done is we haven't done this for a great deal of the concepts that actually contribute to the instrumentalization of animals. And and you know you just think of any of any kind of um, meat concepts like pork, um, beef, uh, poultry, all sorts of things like that. These are the sorts of concepts that um, that sort of objectify or make absent um, animals in our language that allows us to engage with them as instruments. Mm. And um, our efforts, uh, I take it the efforts of, of animal activists and advocates and all that, is to reveal um, the actual moral properties of these things by changing the language that we use to interpret their existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, <clears throat> I was actually wanting to bring up, obviously, as is always brought up in vegan discussions, those who are anti-animal uh, activism or anti-vegans, <laughs> anti-vegans, gosh. Um, but one thing I find really, really interesting that when I scour through the comment sections on um, often a lot of animal rescues is when farmers or um, those who, who consume animal products often say things like, you know, these animal activists are hurting the animals in the process of removing them from, from slaughterhouses or, or these animals are getting hurt in this process, which explicitly acknowledges that there is um, an acknowledgement of the animal pre-slaughter, pre-death. Um, do you think that that is a deliberate choice? Like, do you think that that um, capacity to engage with the animal pre-death, even on the other side, is is something quite interesting to touch on? So, engaged by with farmers, farmers engaging with animals pre-death. Yeah, well, farmers at least acknowledging in public forums, or at least using as an example of why animal activists are wrong or bad, the idea that they the animal may ironically be hurt in the process of being saved. So there is that acknowledgement of something pre-death there. Yeah, there is. So farmers are interesting. I mean, I think we all need to recognise that it's their job, and they mm. all. This is how they make a living, and it's it's going to be to no great surprise that they'll do whatever it's required to ensure that they are uh, you know make enough money to make to you know. Uh, to live their life. I think what I'm trying to ask, sorry, I feel like I didn't spit that out particularly well, but I think what I'm trying to ask is that they they sort of do employ the original meaning of humane in their um, their attack on vegans in that we didn't practice kind or benevolent behaviour by taking these animals yeah. out. And I just do think it is so prevalent that that concept of, of humane is so visceral across the board. Um, I think that... that- Farmers definitely use this in their tactics to sort of undermine um, vegan or animal activist tactics. Um, as you said, when they take them out or when they, you know, save them from these particular circumstances, you're, you're kind of left with this animal or this non-human animal that doesn't really have any other role in society, so it's unclear where, where they're meant to go. And I guess farmers exploit this by saying, you know, you know, don't take them out of this circumstance. This yeah, is, that's this interesting. Is, this is where their existence is. You take them out of this, they, they won't exist anymore. Well, they lack worth then. Yeah, exactly. And it, that would probably be counterintuitive for farmers. Yeah. 
And so, um, yeah, and, and, you know, it's counterintuitive for society given that there's no social script for us to be able to interact with farmed animals. I mean, that's the term. We, I mean, they're farmed animals, right? Mm. That's, that's how we understand them. Um, and so I guess there's a sense in which farmers can exploit it in a sense by saying it's inhumane because when you take them out of this context, you have no role for their existence. Mm. Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting philosophical topic. It's probably not worth getting into because uh, it's a big one, is... Um, what do, what do we do with all these animals, right? Mm. I mean, do we save them or do we just sort of breathe them out of existence because it's such, a, you know, a bad life? Uh, it's it's a hard one. I mean, to that's do. a favourite of people that are that are anti-vegetarianism. Um, mm. You know, cows will either rule the world or what do we do with them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it is a big one. But, yeah, I think I would personally just say let's stop breeding them for our use and yeah. take care of the ones who are here in a, some kind of sanctuary situation Definitely. and then that would kind of take care of itself. But, yeah, speaking of getting onto big issues, but you mentioned the farmers. I just thought of this recently. Um, I don't know if either of you and some listeners may or may not be aware, but the show Sean Michaelis, Mad as Hell, it's on mm. ABC. It's a comedy show. And they had a recent sketch where it was um, basically there'd been like um, – uh, what do you call it? Uh, hit men. I don't know if that's a sexist term. Maybe women can kill just about men, but uh, contract killers. I don't, I don't know quite the term uh, to get, take gender out of it. But basically, yeah, they'd been doing this and they've, oh, my fan, my dad did and that kind of thing. And they were like, oh, you're destroying the community and we're sponsoring the local <laughs> sport team and stuff like that. And like people might find a bit of an offensive comparison. But I kind of think a little bit the same in terms of the animal industries. It's like, um, yeah, I, I get no pleasure out of people losing their jobs. But at, at the same time, I guess to make the argument that there are jobs in it, therefore we can't even talk about the ethics of it mm. kind of to me says anything that makes money is beyond any ethical kind of discussions and yeah, again no. we could probably think of all kinds of things that do make money therefore there's jobs in it yeah um, but we're still going to have a conversation about the ethics of it um, and also I think um, this is a point I've made on the show before but I'm not aware um, so secretaries for example used to be a really common job right mm. lots of people did it uh, and then it ba- basically gradually got phased out because of email and that kind of thing has become a mo- mainly redundant job. Not too many people do it. And as far as I know, again, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not aware of any big sort of claim of we need to save these secretary jobs, even though they're no longer yeah. useful. And that was a, a job dominated by women. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to animal agriculture, which is more male-dominated job and also sure. you know, jobs in coal, that kind of thing is a male-dominated job. It's like we, we have to retain these jobs despite the environmental impact, despite the ethics towards animals in that case as well so uh, yeah it's a big question but uh, yeah yeah go ahead yeah yeah no I think that's a really interesting point and I was what um, you just made me think of Nick was the there is great irony in you know that the the whole money for farmers campaign and because the irony is it's not just protecting your life it's protecting your life worth living for these farmers so that they are able to have a life that is comfortable so it is an acknowledgement of you know, through through human animals an acknowledgement of the importance of someone's livelihood not just being yeah, not not just making ends meet essentially, and mm-hmm. I think that that's completely forgotten about when it comes to the um yep. the yeah analysis of animals. So I think what we can learn from that is that um, this is ideological, right? The fact that we don't protect secretaries and we do protect uh, you know farmers is that it's so ingra- mediating is so ingrained in our culture, whatever that is, um, that that we're not protecting farmers' jobs, we're protecting. Um, our, our self-identification as, as people who engage in particular kinds of behaviour, mm. and that's what we're protecting, really. This is, and that's, that's to me, is all ideological. Or essentially, yeah, we're protecting the gatekeepers of an ideology that yeah. we're not willing to let go of or yes. graduate from. Yeah. 
Mm. And I thought I might actually bring in a news article here because it's quite relevant to what we've been discussing. So it's Victoria Plan's 900k campaign to counter animal activist message. This is from Chantelle Francis in the Weekly Times from July 31, 2019. So just a little bit of the article. They mentioned a public campaign to stamp out untruthful and negative messages spread about the Victorian agricultural industry by animal activists will be funded by the state government. The state will spend $710,000 on the campaign and provide an additional $190,000 to the Victorian Farmers Federation to work with and support farmers affected by farm invasions. Um, and this is Victorian Agriculture Minister um, Jacqueline Symes. The campaign will provide an opportunity to tell the story from farmers' perspective and really combat some of those messages. In my view, a not true and a casting a view of the whole industry of isolated <laughs> incidents. I'm sure there's quite a lot we can say about that, but I, I would just say first of all that yeah, it kind of neglects the fact these industries spend so much on advertising already, and then they're given they're being given money by the you know by the government when that could be spent you know, spent towards healthcare or education or whatever whatever else. Uh, um, and yeah, I mean, there's so much the bad apples argument is one that comes up a lot, but uh, any, any reactions to that? Either of you? My initial reaction <laughs> is that it's really peculiar to see that or to hear the suggestion that the sorts of claims are false when they're not just claims, they're actually documented footage yeah, of yeah. farms that, you know, of very, um, very sort of systematic behavior in farm mm. um, uh, settings where it's not as if it's just just you know a bad egg beating an animal with a baseball bat. It's mm. the whole you know machines are just doing mm. it's what it was designed to do. So it's mm. a bit weird for me to hear that. Oh, these are all false. It's mm. like no, this is actually just the the architecture of killing. Right. That's yeah. that's just the fact. Mm. Yeah. And I think Dominion is, is sort of been a big yeah. discussion. And yeah, a lot of, I have not seen the whole thing, but I've seen parts of it. And a lot of the focus, as you say, is just on the, the, the tools that are used in so, those industries, not when they're used incorrectly in inverted commas, but yeah. just the notion of these industries. And also Dominion have had a strong focus on practices that are legal and standard practice as yeah. well, rather than these isolated incidents as well. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I think it will be interesting to see what they come up with. Um, mm -hmm. And if it's anything that's contrary to the footage of Dominion in particular, then again, we know that this is just going to be ideology protecting itself. Mm. I wonder how far such a campaign will go, because I think that's sort of what we've been, what we've been discussing today, was that these campaigns are already in place, essentially, by the use of these stickers, by the use of these words. Um, these campaigns are already happening. And... I am just genu genuinely intrigued by how they are able to tiptoe around the violence anymore. I find it really, really fascinating that this is even able to go ahead. I think that, yeah, you'll probably see um, a lot more uh, use of moralised concepts to justify farming behaviours. Mm. Um, and I think that that's probably what this, you know, close to a million dollars will be, will be used doing. Mm. I think there's something quite... Um, sad and ironic i mean obviously the three of us do but in that there is clearly a market for um ethics there is clearly a market for ethics and that's something that we we've all touched on um but how we protect the meat industry within those parameters is terrifying do you think so oh certainly um yeah i think that that's uh, getting to the crux i guess of all of this is that um Given it's in virtue of there being a market for ethics that the parameters of protecting the meat eating industry um, uh, is the use of exploiting those those ethical or moral sensibilities. Um, I just don't think that 
the media industry would have survived if they didn't have a moral solution to our moral concerns. Mm. Mm. That's very true. Mm. And I wanted to hear, yeah, hear, hear your thoughts on something we've had a bit of an ongoing discussion on the show, and, and you touched on it a bit before, of this language of pets and companion animals, because we actually did a show with a sociologist, Zoe Sutton, who is kind of looking critically at our relationships with pets, and she actually purposely uses the term pets to, right. to indicate that they are property under yep. the law, and, and even in the best kind of situation, their freedom is quite limited and that kind of thing. So she uses that word pet, and also uh, Joan Denea, who writes, a lot about language and animals um she you know says we should re- when she's talking about animal advocates should replace like you know meat with flesh and these yep. kind of things she said mm. we should replace pet with pet because pet is kind of inaccurate yep. um having said that recently we had melissa lang on the show who was talking use that term companion animals and kind of was talking about trying to you know advocate for them and, and have them treated better and i kind of i see both sides in that i acknowledge you know my dog's are pets under the law, I guess, and in the sort of the, the situation they're in, but I do my best to try and treat them as companion animals within those constraints. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on that that languaging? I kind of see the benefit of using both terms yeah. to a degree. Yeah. It's characteristic yeah. of basically all debates in social mm. philosophy at the moment, where mm. it's um we're we're a bit confused about whether or not we preserve objectifying language in order to pick out specific injustices. Because mm. if we shift mm. from that language then we'll we'll lose our ability to recognize it. But if we don't shift our language, then we reinforce these concepts that actually dictate and govern our behavior. Mm. So the reason why I think it's a good thing to shift from pets to companion animals is because when we, um, when we do make that shift, um, companion animal is going to do the job of revealing intrinsic moral properties of non-human animals. Mm. That's actually going to um, so play a role in interpreting or rendering intelligible experience of this particular thing out there in the world. And in virtue of that, that's going to undergird new and better behavior in response to it. Mm. If we keep pet, mm. the issue is that it might not do the job of, of, of um, interpreting the experience of non-human animals in a way that's going to change our behavior towards them. So language is really important. In, I mean, this is my position. Language and concepts are really important because they dictate the nature of our social lives. And if we're not changing them and we're not doing sort of a, a job of sort of making them evolve um, under moral constraints then we just won't get to these higher order kind of changes like in law. We just won't, it won't happen because there'll be no reason to change the law if you know, we're treating them as instruments because that's how we're interpreting them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, we might go, go to a track now. Um, and this is on, uh, yeah, on, on dogs. So this is Petrol Girls with Sky. And this is all about the singer, yeah, losing her dog. And, and I guess bring it back to today's topic is like, again, as I touched on before, it's like, you know, it's such a sad thing if we actually genuinely care about an animal to cut their life short. So we're certainly, if we, I believe, meaningfully care about animals, we're not going to cut their lives like 90% short when they're totally healthy, for example. So yeah, this is Petrol Girls with Sky.
left your course fur as you exhaled forever. is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you cause? for What's giving us the opportunity to morning. speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR in Melbourne at 8.55 a.m. or 8.55 a.m. radio. Uh, we're speaking today to Paul Mikhail Katapang Podosti, who wrote an article for the Oxford Journal of Animal Ethics concerning the difference between killing humanely versus humane killing, and essentially 
we've been discussing what we get away with when we stick a humane sticker on a piece of animal, uh, an animal product, essentially, and and where the consumer sits within this morally. Now, there was something we spoke about a little bit off air, Paul, and it had to do with a book that was published by Bloomsbury, uh, by Dale Peterson, called The Moral Lives of Animals. And there's a common argument that it's sort of an old school argument about how animals are just different to non-human animals are just different to homo sapiens because they're not as intelligent or they don't necessarily have moral lives. And what this book argued was that they in fact do. And uh, this particular author followed stories of elephants saving animals from other species um, that seem weak and dying, about lab rats actually saving other rats caged and uh, chimpanzees losing their life lives for unrelated animals. Um, I want to talk to you about why we don't extend those parameters of, um, I guess, what, what, why we are so stuck on assuming that humans are so deeply humane or deeply moral when, when what we said off the air was that we don't extend that same thing to yeah. animals. I think it's a familiar argument that you hear when discussing animal ethics with people, especially those who don't agree um, with, say, veganism, um, is that they say, well... Humans are, you know, uniquely, uh, 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 you know, uniquely creatures of um, of morality. We have moral dispositions. We have concepts like fairness, justness. Uh, we enter into these unique and complex social con- uh, contracts that actually, you know, allows us to coordinate and behave you know, well with each other. And these are all reasons um, to think that morality is unique to humans, and we shouldn't extend it beyond it because animals just aren't capable of that kind of behavior. I think what's interesting about Dale Peterson, uh, Dale, uh, Peterson's book is to suggest that non-human animals have a great deal of moral dispositions too, um, and so this kind of argument doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work, which is that they do fit into a kind of moral system. Perhaps they don't fit into the moral system in the way that humans do. So we probably have a great deal of expectations of humans that we don't of, of animals, quite obviously. Um, but this is not to say that that. Um, that uh, animals are just completely out of uh, out of the out of the picture. Mm. Yeah, and I think also I know Tom Reagan's work. He made a moral case for animal rights, and um, he, he was touching on the way in which a lot of these things we we say this sort of like uh, rationality and awareness of rights for others, those kind of things, they don't necessarily apply to all humans as well. Yeah. And like obviously, you know, very young children, also maybe people um, with disabilities that are quite severe as well. And so if we if we do have that bar for having rights, it not only is um, harmful to non-human animals, but also marginalised humans as well, I think, as well. That's definitely yeah. the case. I mm. think what's interesting in philosophical arguments about this is that people are willing to bite the bullet on, on, on these sorts of concerns. So people like Peter Singer mm. might, be, might say, all well and good, you know, babies, mm. and, babies and people living with severe disabilities. They're mm. just uh, a bit outside of the moral community in ways that you know, other humans aren't. So, but I take it that for most people, that's unintuitive. And for most people, we want to say that babies uh, and others are part of the moral community. And if that's the case, then we should uh, make the inference that so are non-human animals. 
uh, I wanted to just go back a little bit in time. So this is uh, from Satya Magazine, which was a yeah, a, 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 a magazine like an online magazine in the sort of animal movement or environmental, animal ethics, social justice kind of space. And this is their editorial from all the way back in September two thousand and six. But I think it's quite relevant to what we're discussing here. So it basically talks about um, Whole Foods Market, which is very big in the US for anyone who's unfamiliar, um, who established an animal compassion foundation. Um, and basically this was praised by many different um, animal advocates. So they had a, a letter dated January 24th, 2005 from Peter Singer, um, as well as 17 different animal rights um, and animal protection and vegan advocacy groups who expressed their appreciation and support for the pioneering initiative being taken by Whole Foods Marketing Setting Farm Animal Compassion stand, um, Standards. And they said that this at Satya uh, gave them pause, this letter from these animal advocates praising this yeah, animal agriculture initiative from Whole Foods Market. Um, and they argued, eventually we will see animal products sold in Whole Foods with the Animal Compassion logo on them. What does it mean when body parts of dead animals are emblazoned with some of the words most precious to the animal rights movement, humane, compassion, free? If the label says it's okay, is that when the critical thinking stops? Are we somehow sending mixed messages to the general public, perhaps even giving them excuses to keep eating meat? So, yeah, again, that was from a, quite a long time ago, but that definitely raised a lot of issues. And I think, yeah, these have been ongoing issues in the movement. Uh, so what are your thoughts in terms of the implications of you know, this article and your work in general for animal advocates in terms of, yeah, do we, yeah, as some animal advocates do, embrace these um, supposedly humane schemes? Or do you think this is something we should be criticising? I think this is something that we should definitely be criticising. I think that, um, so the concern that you seem to be suggesting is that for animal advocates and animal activists in particular, is that um, that they need the right tools to be able to pick out injustices that exist in the world. And they need the right sort of understandings of reality to work out what's the best way to respond to it. Um, part of what can confuse or make this process really difficult is just not having the right concepts or language to be able to see injustice or to respond to it appropriately. So I guess the suggestion... Um, as someone who's involved in this kind of thing in philosophy, and I think activists have been doing this forever, is that we should, critical thinking isn't just about the world. It's about, critical thinking should be directed to the way in which we represent the world in our language and in our concepts. So we should always be sort of sceptical and ambitious with respect to what our concepts and our interpretive devices could be. So we should always think, do we have the right language to be able to understand all that's going wrong in this particular situation? Do we have the right concepts to interpret uh, the situation in a way that allows us to respond to injustice in the right kind of way. Mm. The, these are the sorts of concerns I think animal advocates and animal activists should have in mind, not just um, what's happening out there in the world. Mm. And I think that that sort of really sordid reclamation of uh, words such as humane and free uh, can be seen across I, I guess capitalism in, in terms of how it sinks its teeth into a variety of different uh, social movements. I mean, you, you see a lot of um, examples of this happening in feminism where women who are paid nothing uh, in um, countries like Bangladesh and India and Sri Lanka are sewing together T-shirts with the word empowered on them. And it is this really um, terrifying place that we're sort of living in, in a, in a very uh, uh, capitalist society where... You can essentially 
encourages the idea that you can essentially have your cake and eat it too or rather you can eat your beef and still feel good or wear your empowered t-shirt and still feel like you are doing something good. Would you agree that that's where we're at? I think that that's definitely where we're at. I do want to say um, maybe this is, I'm not sure where this is coming from, but anyway, I do want to say that um, maybe when big brands like this do get behind animal advoc- uh, animal ethics causes and all sorts of things like that, it might be it might serve the the purpose as well. I mean, for people who are interested in protecting animals, it might serve purpose as well, and we should be open to it. The issue is that um, being in the society in which businesses need to make money, and they need to sort of um, is that it's very difficult to work out exactly what their intentions are. And so we should always mm. be skeptical of that. Mm. Um, and as you said, you know, having empowered, you know, you know slapped on a, on a T-shirt when it's made in such awful conditions is, is probably a good sign that the intentions aren't very good. Pr- presumably if they were good, um, then they would ethically source their clothes. and labor. Absolutely. But I do think there is obviously a, a question of access, which is something that we should always keep in mind when we talk about um, activism generally, not just vegan activism. And I think that the deliberate um, misleading uh, done by all of these sort of companies, but particularly given that we're talking about this um, free-range eggs and, uh, and ethically sourced uh, meat or grass-fed beef, um, yeah, I do think it is a deliberate ploy, as you've as you've mentioned. Yeah, uh, yeah and it's quite a quite an interesting, smart, and ultra capitalist one at that. I th- I think that it's <laughs> it's definitely a very sort of cunning move for them to to um, to make, um, and I think part of it, I think part of what the issue is that we're so, I guess, in willful ignorance, we're probably very trusting of of brands, which is kind of unbelievable given how bad they have been in the past. But for things like Whole Foods, who present themselves in a way that is sort of imbued with some kind of like, you know, moralistic overtones, you know, these are the people that, you know, this is a shop that you go to if you want to live a wholesome life or something like mm. that. We trust them for some reason. We trust that they're doing they're doing what they're meant to be doing. And and because of that, I think that um because of that, I think that this is what causes us to sort of have our moral sensibilities confused as well, because we're not um we're too trusting that they're actually um, in service of us. Or yeah, absolutely. I think rem- that reminds me of a conversation you and I had a little while ago about Whole Foods generally and how, I mean, do you think it's more dangerous that an organisation such as, as that or any given um, uh, organisation of a similar genre or, or, or brand um, would serve, say, for example, eggs or dairy? Do you think it's more dangerous, uh, perhaps just theoretically or philosophically, that those... Uh, those animal products are sold there than it is, say, a standard Woolworths because it is more um, validating that, yeah, like this is a great space for you to be in and you're doing something wonderful. Um, it just feels a little bit different for me, I think. It feels a little bit sour. I think that it's definitely worse in the mm. sense that if you're the sort of person who purports to be, uh, uh, you know, ethically sound and yet sort of don't question the sorts of practices um, that are quite clearly morally impermissible, then you are you are sort of exploiting people's moral sensibilities in a way that's pernicious, <laughs> that it's um that's very ugly, um and that's not to get Woolworths off the hook. I mean Woolworths <laughs> yeah. is just you know bad for a bunch of other reasons, but at least they're not the sorts of people or companies that are just like um we're good and you should trust us. But it of. could explain to some extent, and I'm sure there are many facets of this, but it could explain to some extent, as we touched on earlier, um why you know vegans have this 
myself included, this sort of frustrating, you know, this disdain for vegetarians in the way that I just don't seem to as much for some meat eaters in many ways, as terrible as that sounds. Um, yeah, don't <laughs> throw vegetarians under the bus, no, but, but, there is, but there is some concern about sort of, you know, getting some moral cachet um, when you're the sort of person that does restrict their consumption of some you know, immoral products, but nonetheless sort of uh, thinks that it's permissible to sort of consume other very immoral products. Um, and so, you know, this, I guess this is all of us. Well, this is me in particular saying, humane, though. go vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I did want to say as well, like in that, you know, that sort of discussions going on back, a, you know, over a decade ago, there was a lot of backlash against that. And I think as a movement, we have not to say we've completely moved on for that, but there has been a lot of backlash. And I think uh, even the bigger organisations who did embrace that um, have increasingly, like even groups like Animals Australia, were much more promoting free range products in the past. I know probably sometime around that time, I was handing out postcards encouraged people to eat free range meat back in the day. Right. Um, I don't see Animal Australia doing those kind of campaigns now. So I think there has been a backlash. I think that's a very positive development. And going back to your article, we mentioned this idea of humane killing is a distraction, a distraction from our ethics about why are we killing these animals in the first place. And I think these corporations and these companies are going to do this distraction. I think as animal advocates, we probably shouldn't join in with that distraction. They're mm. going to do it anyway. Um, but when animal advocates join in, it becomes more powerful. But I wanted to hand over to Paul in the last couple of minutes. Any Anything that you wanted to get to that you haven't quite got to or also any plugs for your work twitter etc if you want to give anything like that uh no, the only plug that i have is that you can read my other work um, and that's accessible on my academia.edu page you can just look up my name and that'll come up mm-hmm. um final things to say my concern is i guess my my concern is the concept of veganism itself is probably under attack um in in a number of different ways initially it is a thick evaluative term in the sense that it um once upon a time signaled that someone didn't consume animal products because they had some moral reasons to do so. Now it's under attack from things like, you know, health, health related reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fashionable thing to do. But the ex- but what makes it sort of particularly sort of confused now is that people are getting away with saying things like, I'm vegan, but sometimes I eat chicken. And so, you know, this has some serious effects on the concept because now it looks like it's permissible under certain conditions to eat meat. Mm. Um, Of course it is, but not the sorts of conditions that people have in mind. So my concern is be very wary about the way you're using language because it does serve to sort of uh, reinforce social hierarchy. And if you're not doing that, then you're probably just contributing to the problem. Right. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Paul. It's been really great to hear your perspective on these issues. Well, thanks for having me. And also great to have you part of the team, Madison. Great Thank to have you, you for this show. And, and in general, just before we take off, a couple of quick plugs. Uh, I want to mention we're part of IRAW, which is Podcast for Animals. So there's a podcasting network dedicated to animal advocacy, scholarship, ideas, social justice, activism, environmentalism, and making the world a better place for all animals. You can find that out at irawpod.com, and you can find lots of other podcasts talking about animals animals there's lots on animal law for example if that's an issue that takes your interest there's a, yeah, a whole bunch of animal podcasts there so yeah if you'd like to hear more podcasts about animals then uh yeah check out that network and you can find all our shows at freedomofspecies.org as well as on itunes if you're interested in these ideas you might want to check out the show challenging the humane myth which was also about this idea of supposedly humane animal products and and challenging that kind of idea 
Um, and yeah, you can also contact us, info at freedomofspecies.org. Connect with, with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find the links for Paul. I'll put them in the show notes at freedomofspecies.org. And if you listen to this live, you can also check out Facebook and Twitter. And on our pages, I've shared all of those plugs there. So that's it for us today. And make sure you stay tuned for Encyclopedia. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.